Good morning. My dad is back. So I have, yeah, from the land, you can could, you could take a seat. Um, as you're taking a seat, go ahead and just say hi to a friend next to you if you don't know. Um, somebody, go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, my dad was in Fargo, North Dakota for, for three weeks. Is this a movie? Fargo. I've never heard of it. Fargo is a thing. Oh, okay. You came from, well, you were there for three weeks on business, and when you got there, it was negative 30? Negative 30? And then he flew, he got stuck in Denver on Friday, couldn't, because they had their blizzard, snow, Mageddon, tornado, whatever, the bomb that went off, and then flew in yesterday, and it was like 85 here. And so, aren't you glad we live in Orange County? If you don't know yet, go visit Fargo, and then come back and let me know what you think. Uh, and so grateful for you. Um, thank you for being here this morning. High expectations that, uh, that God's going to continue to work and minister in our hearts and, and that he's got a word, that he's got a word for you. And there's something that he wants to do in you and through you. And so, uh, where, where we're kind of, kind of going this morning is, is James chapter four. And this is a big step in the Rigdon household this morning, by the way, we've taken West into the rows and the seats. And so, uh, and I must say that he's awake, he's going to hear me last, uh, you know, I always, always long and yearn for the encouragement of my wife after a message I preach, and she said uh, last week, she's like, you put, you put Wes to sleep. <laughs> she's like, it's either a really good thing for a father or it's a bad thing, but I'll take it in the case of a baby, that's a good thing, it's soothing, it's peaceful he feels safe with my voice and so but maybe this maybe this week he'll stay awake and isn't he so cute uh, he's 16 pounds um he's two months old <laughs> he's in how old uh, clothing now six to nine months clothes so he i don't know where he got it we'll just say he got it from me that's probably the that's probably the safest safest assumption here and so well, why don't we jump in, um, quit clowning around in this place, and we'll jump into what, what it is that we're in. We're, we're in the book of James. We're going through the book of James together as a community, um, and, you know, the hope and, and, and why, we're, why we're stepping into this in, is James is a very direct person. Uh, he's, the way he's really concise, and he has a way of using words that are stern, that, that might sting a little bit, but also are, are lead me to a place of humility, because the voice that he has into the church, he's talking to Christians, he's talking to the church, it's a real fatherly voice. It's a voice of love, um, it's a voice of grace, it's not a voice of judgment or uh, division or anything like that. He looks at the church, and he loves the church greatly, um, and he is calling followers of Jesus to, uh, uh, to, to see their faith, step away from just a gathering, and see it transition into like a Monday through Saturday thing. And so everything that James talks about, if you've missed any of the past week's podcasts, I would encourage you to go back and listen. Um, I hope it's been helpful for you. Um, but, but for him, like faith in Jesus is incomplete if it just rests in a gathering space. Like there's, there's so much more he believes that God's created for us and in us and wants to do through us that, that go beyond just 
an hour gathering. And so, so he's, he's coming at it from that perspective, coming from that lens. And, and for us, that's what's encouraging to me. It's always been a value of reunion. If you've been around for a, a, any part of time, you know that we say, hey, we're a Monday through Saturday church. That doesn't discredit the gathering. Um, that just pushes to say, like, hey, the gathering is something that we know. The gathering is something we're familiar with. This is no, no shock to Orange County life, right? I've yet to meet very few people that have never been to church in Orange County. Most people have some sort of context to church. Um, and maybe that's the reason they don't go anymore. But there's context to church in our culture. The, the disconnect that we see are, are lives that are lived consistently, right? The things that people say they believe versus the way that they walk out their lives. And so James is coming at us and he's saying, hey, like, can, can you just like walk the talk? Like church, like, do you realize how different our world would be if just a few more people caught this idea of just to live out the things that you say? without the things that you believe, that would make a difference in our world. And so that's the context. That's where we're coming out of. Um, and so first week, we, we, we talked about um, uh, tests and temptations and how to navigate those two things. Because if you've lived life at any point, you guys are all seasoned lifegoers. So you know that life comes with tests. And there are temptations that come your way. So James shows us how to deal with those two things. Chapter 2 was all about the dangers of favoritism and treating people um, more highly than others. And so how deadly that is within the church. And then three, he goes after our speech and the way that we talk and specifically towards gossip towards one another. And then what we're going to see today in James chapter four, he's going to come at us with some more stern words. He doesn't let up. He's kind of like a gas pedal type person, right? Like, like, wait, are you going to pump the brakes on this whole thing? James going to like tell me something that feels good. No? Okay, just want to clarify that. And so now he's going to come at us and he's going to share some words of caution about something that he believes is in every single one of us. And it's pride. And so that's where we're going to jump into. James chapter 4, verse 1. We'll have it on the screen. I'm reading out of the CSB version. Extra credit if you know what that stands for. Anybody? CSB. What did you say? Christian. Standard. Well, you, it's not fair. Like you get the notes every week. Okay, the Christian Standard Bible. It is the newest translation, and from what they say, is the most accurate translated from Greek and Hebrew into English. And so, if you're looking for a new translation, something fresh, and yes, CSB is where it's at. Verse one. Here we go. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Wow, where are we going today? Don't they come from your passions that you wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and you covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, welcome to church, everybody. Hope you had a really encouraging week because it doesn't seem like... You're going to be much encouraged here this morning. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world must become the enemy of God. Or do you think it says without reason that scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensively. But he gives grace. Therefore, God says, he resists the humble but gives grace to the, he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter, thank you, Nathan, be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We all love Nathan for that reason. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, I'm titling this message, The Battle That We All Have to Stop Fighting. Let's pray together. Lord, we uh, uh, recognize that your, that your word um, in Scripture, you have a way of going about things that challenge us, ways that require us to, 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 to really reflect and do business with our souls and the things that are going on inside of us, things that are unseen to the eye. And Lord, I pray that, that that work that you want to do in us this morning, things about our soul, things that are going on inside of us that maybe we can't see in ourselves or maybe that others can't see in us, we recognize that you see them. And you're all about maturity. You're all about growth. You're all about making us more into the image of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that that would be the outcome this morning, that we would leave differently than we came in, that we would look a little bit more like Jesus than the way we came in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's something new happening um, in, the, in the Rigdon household that is quite, it's, it's new for Jesse and I, something that we haven't had to deal with yet because for the last couple years we've just had one child. We went from one child to three ch- children in, in two months, which is a lot. If you want to ask me how that happened, you could, you're like, how does that, there's a way how that happened, so we can let you know if you don't know how that happened. Yeah, so instant family. Um, and uh, uh, the new thing for us is, is kids fighting. Children fighting with one another. Uh, you know, our kids, we were just talking about this yesterday. Cyrus was such a good brother yesterday. He was helping Rosie, like, get snacks. He was helping her with so many different things. And so this is true. Like, say there's a 10-minute period that you were to walk into our house or go anywhere with us. Eight out of those 10 minutes are bliss. They're wonderful. You know, part of that eight minutes, maybe they're spending time cooking in the like, fake kitchen together, or they're playing with the scooters in the backyard, or building Legos together, and then all of a sudden the eight minutes is over, and there's a switch that goes off, and all of a sudden you hear screaming, and crying, and shouting, and all of a sudden now we've got a problem on our hands. World War III has broken out in the Rigdon household. Why do the fights happen? Well, because somebody took somebody from, something from somebody else, Right? There was something that either Cyrus had, maybe he was building this fancy Lego set that he worked really hard on, and Rosie just comes in after and after and just goes, boom, destroys it. Or, or, or maybe Rosie is playing with something that is Cyrus's toy. Let's give him that, right? But, but now all of a sudden, Cyrus wants it. And he goes and he takes that toy from Rosie and runs away, and all of a sudden, Rosie's hurt, and she's mad and very upset about something. At the end of the day, what do we see happening? Well, they, let's just start off. They, they, if you know anything about Cyrus and Rosie, they have very two strong personalities. Uh, they both know what they want all the time. The heart wants what the heart wants, right? And, and this, is, this is what they want. This is what they lead into. Their lives are passionate. They have so much conviction. As kids, it's like, oh, yeah, we can laugh. It's cute, whatever. But this is, this is the way they live their lives, and I think as we look at their lives, we see something I see in them is that pride in their own lives, in a kid's life specifically, 
is really easy to see, isn't it? Like, we can identify pride in a kid. You took something from me. That's mine. Why are you taking that? What business do you have? It, it shows at a very outward level the pride within, within a child. It, we're just older. And so we've become a little bit more uh, seasoned in, 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 in hiding the pride that we have. Kids have nothing to lose. They're not thinking about that. They're just going to react and be and show their feelings out there. Some adults do the same thing, and they are kids, right? We maybe know somebody like that. We're like, just grow up a little bit. Chill a little bit. But, but for adults, pride isn't so much as an outward expression, but it's an inward struggle. It's something that we've learned to, to keep inside of us. Pride is in all of us, James goes after, in, in one form or another. It's a battle that we all fight. And, and, and what James is going after, and the reason why he's addressing this, is it really does wreak havoc. It wreaks havoc in our souls. It wreaks havoc in our relationships. And it wreaks havoc in a, in a community like this. In a Christian community, pride is the root of all kinds of evil. That's why he says wars, murders, the things that we look at, the things that would disgust us the most about society, the things that we would say, that's broken, that's an injustice, treating people that way is not okay, probably nine times out of ten, we can go back and trace that to pride. There's something going on, pride is the root, and James comes at us and he says, hey, if we can work and name this and see this in ourselves, and do everything we can through the grace of Jesus to eliminate this, this, this bad, this evil thing inside of our souls, can you imagine what the world would look like? Can you imagine what your marriage or your relationship or whatever it may be, your roommate situation, can you imagine that if a few, few people actually got this idea and saw pride for what it is, something that wreaks havoc in my soul, something that destroys and breaks and causes divorce, right? Like this could be the thing that we all step into. Can you imagine a world this way? So personally speaking, I know for me, this is, this is very true. Uh, pride, the older we get, is, is probably less like fighting and temper tantrums and us being like, ah, I didn't get my way, right? And it, and it exercises itself more into bitterness, uh, jealousy, judgmentalism, and discontentment. Pride is the root of all evil. The heart, and this is what Bible does, it's what a relationship with Jesus does. It goes in deep. It cares about the things that we see, it cares about the exterior, it cares about the surface level stuff, but to know that, man, if we do the inside work, if we go after the thing that's causing it, health will come out in all different aspects of our lives. So James is speaking to the church here. You know what he's saying right away? Families fight. This is what happens. Uh, you all come from a family. You're all part of some sort of a family. You would know to this to be true. Am I right? Has anybody here in their family never fought before? Are we, are we awake? Did you guys get enough coffee? No. Well, I'm, I'm willing to bet at least most of you got more sleep than Jesse and I did last night. Um, and we're awake and we're here. Are you awake? Families fight, right? And so, uh, and so where he comes after and what he's describing and what he wants us to lean into just a little bit is to show us that, that fighting is going to happen. This is a normal thing. Because when we do life with one another, pride in one way or another will rear its ugly head into something. So the more that we suppress it, the more that we push it away, the more that we ignore it, division happens, fighting happens. 
And it's a recipe for disaster. He's, this, is what, this is what James is telling us. It's a recipe for disaster. The two things I would argue that the heart wants the most is intimacy and pride. It, what's intimacy? We know it's to be, it's to be known, it's to know, right? It's, those, it's that working, like, man, I want, I want to be known by somebody and I want to know somebody. It's relationship. This is something God wired us for. Pride is something that the heart wants too. It's a broken part of us. Pride is rooted in desire, rooted in longing. It's rooted in pleasure. And, and what we see very quickly, this is, this, is the, this is the dilemma that we all have in every relationship, part of any community that we're ever, we've ever been in, is the balance of these two things. And the issue with it is that pride and intimacy don't go together. It does not work. To be in a healthy relationship requires what? Pride to die. We, this is the secret to love, right? This is what, this is what Jesus models. Sacrifice. In order to see pride be eliminated from your life, you've got to come to the end of yourself. You've got to die to yourself. You've got to let all those things, all your longings and your desires that you want for you to be secondary to the person that you want a relationship with, right? And so pride and intimacy do not go hand in hand. Does this mean we still won't fight? Say pride is removed from your life completely. You've mastered it. You're the most sacrificial and selfless person we've ever seen. Will you still fight? Yes. So he's not saying, hey, fighting is, a, is, a, is always a negative thing. They're actually good fights to have. They're actually fights worth having. Jesse and I have had these very few times. We've had fights that have helped. <laughs> All of it's my doing, by the way. But we have had fights that, like, we actually work some stuff out, Right? that actually lead to health in our relationship, things that need to be talked about. And so those fights are rooted in understanding. It's what James gets after in, in chapter 1 where he says, hey, if you want to fight, you're going to work some stuff out in relationship, be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Because you, there is a healthy way to navigate relationships. There's a healthy way to challenge each other. Just make sure that pride doesn't work itself into that relationship. Because pride will destroy you, and it will destroy those around you. And so our nature, just like a little child, is to get what we want. We know what we want in life. A lot of us have big dreams and visions and desires, and, and so we, we know what we want. But do we always get what we want? I think somebody wrote a song about that at one point or another. We don't always get what we want. So James is going to show us, and what he's stepping into is he gives us some practicals on how to stop fighting this battle that's inside all of us, and that is pride. If you're taking notes this morning, I'm sure you are. I hear all the doodlings and stuff. Thank you. <laughs> Number one is what he says. Don't, don't dwell on what you don't have. Don't dwell on what you don't have. I think this desire in every single one of us to actually dwell on stuff, to look at our lives and, and see our car and to see the place that we live, to have our job, to have our income, to have our relationships. There's something inside all of us that does be like, well, if I just had that, or man, if I could just make a little bit more money, or if I could just get that Tesla, or if I could just live in that neighborhood, then, then I'll be good, right? 
So that desire is there. And I actually think that desire in all of us is actually rooted in how God created us. The interesting thing about that. Why? God is a God of pleasure. God is a God of good gifts. God is generous. And so he's created us to be people who enjoy receiving things, who enjoy pleasure, who enjoy desire. It's just when we take those things, those good things, and believe that I need everything in order to be happy. And we can't draw the line between wants and needs. So if I don't get what I want, then God is withholding something from me. God is punishing me, or God isn't blessing me like he does all those other people. So we learn the hard way. All of us learn, uh, and we develop this discontentment inside of us by learning that we can't get what we want by not getting what we want. So we decide to sign up for the hard path, and we seek out on this adventure of trying to get and consume and materialism. This is what Orange County and the West is all about. More stuff. More things is where happiness comes from. And we all know, by the way, that's a lie. No one in here is like, what? I'm so happy all the time because I have all this stuff. We know that's not true. But our desires and our nature continually be in this place. Get a new car. Well, I I can't wait to actually get that car. That's what I'm going to get next. I just got a minivan, and I was like, man, next one, I told you, next, next car we're buying, the kids will be older, I'm getting a big truck. I was going to throw tools back there and, <laughs> and not ever use them, but I'll have them. I mean, you never see anybody with a pickup truck actually do, pick, picking up anything. Huh? Well, Ben, but yeah, Ben, that's, he's it. But I'll have a pickup truck, and I'll pretend to pick things up one day. But... But James is going after something deeper here in in regards to pride, in in regards to discontentment. He's addressing our hearts. And and he's actually asking us this question. This is what I see in this passage. He says, I think if he were here today, this is what he would ask us. What what happens in your soul when you don't get what you want? What happens? And and you may need to write that down and actually think about that that next time you don't get something that you want. But what happens inside of you? Because I, if you're anything like me, I have, I have this ongoing struggle with discontent. It's real. And, and, and it's rooted in a gift I think God has given me. Uh, if, you, if you've taken strength finders or whatever, but like one of my top gifts is Maximizer. And you know what Maximizer is? Amir knows. Amir's professional at all this. But it's always continuing to see like, you're always seeing the good in something else. You're always wanting to kind of shine things up. You, you're, like, you see this community or my relationships with people, and I'm like, okay, it could always be better. That's, that's the lens that I view life, and I'm not just like, yes, everything's good. I'm always like, it could be better. You know, so there's a good, there's a leadership quality there, but it also could be really destructive in my soul because I can't ever sit back and just enjoy what's happening. I can't enjoy the relationships that are right in front of me. I'm always thinking and I'm always in a different place than the current place that I'm in now. So James goes on to describe to us what happens in our souls if we live in this place of discontentment. And he says it will give birth to entitlement. What is entitlement? Entitlement thinks and believes the lie that I deserve everything, that I'm owed everything. Like everything out there is, is for me. And this is, this is something that our culture preaches at us. 
Go get what you want. Go take it. Step on anybody that you have to get there. Just, just go. There are stronger people and there are weaker people, so be a stronger person, right? And so entitlement, he says, is something that really can corrupt our soul. And it's this attitude that will produce bitterness, envy, and judgmentalism. And so it may start off with a good desire of, like, success, hard work, but it begins to look at other people in a negative way. That he says, corrupts your soul. So, so why is James speaking so strongly against this? Why is he urging us to purge our souls of this kind of behavior? I would argue that it's because it goes against everything that God says about who he is. Namely, provider. Think about that for a second. One of the strongest characteristics of God is provider. This is who he says. I am. I'm your provider. Jehovah Jireh. This is who I am. If, if you can't live in that place, if you, if you have a relationship with me but can't understand that I've got you, we're going to have a hard time with intimacy. We're going to have a hard time uh, growing together. You're going to live in anxiety. You're going to live in fear if we can't get this idea of who I actually am. And discontentment will keep us away from enjoying and participating with one of the strongest characteristics of our God, which is provider. So God tells us that he will give us everything that we need. Obviously, he doesn't say, hey, you're going to get everything you want, but I'm going to give you everything you need. And if you're like me, this has been one of the debates in my mind about God as provider. And I've, and I've learned along the way that we have to contextualize that just a little bit to our culture. Because if, if, we, just, if we say out loud, God is my provider. Look at all the stuff he's given me. Look at my house. Look at my car. Look at my refrigerator full of food. Look at all my relationships. God is my provider. And then you fly to a third world country. And you talk to somebody who's following Jesus like you wouldn't believe. Who's so faithful. Who's so on fire for God. That will also tell you, God is my provider. But you look at their life. They have no food. They don't have a house. They don't have a car. And so it's important for us to understand when we talk about a characteristic of God, we understand that God as provider transcends cultures. It transcends much bigger than we... It doesn't just mean like the day-to-day needs. Talk to people in third world countries. You ask them what that means, they will tell you it's an eternal perspective that they have of God. Earth is very temporary. They don't have stuff here. But what fuels their faith, what fuels them to actually follow Christ in this world is life with God. It's it's eternal perspective. Everything is so temporary here. They recognize that. One day, I will have everything I need, namely Jesus. Relationship with him is it. So when God says he's your provider, I'm not even sure he's talking about your car. That might just be privilege. That might just be something else. What he's going after, he's saying, I'm a provider, Jesus. That's that's the best provisions you can ever have for your life is a relationship with me. Is that enough for you? Is Jesus enough? Transparency, that's what was happening to me on the front row over here during worship. That's what happened as, as, as the band's leading us, come Lord Jesus, 
it's going through my mind, is Jesus enough? If everything was taken from me, my wife, my kids, my job, everything, would I still come and bow before him? Would he be enough? And God as provider is saying, and asking us that question, am I enough? We may not know until we start losing things. We may not lose till there's know that there's actual sacrifice that comes along with it. This is the work that he wants to do in us. So living in a place of discontentment, we choose that lifestyle. We're actually saying no to living in one of the most important characteristics of God, his provision. So asking you a question. Where are you fixing your eyes? Where are your eyes fixed? Are they focused on your bank account? Are they focused on popularity? Are they focused on whatever? Where are you fixing your eyes? Am I focusing on everything I don't have? Or on what everyone else has? Or am I focused on the things that God has given me? And the, and the, the thing that he did the most on the cross for me is Jesus. Where the author of you fix your eyes on Jesus. For he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Number two. We're going to go quick here, peeps. Love the Lord, or love the world, but don't blend into it. James 4, verse 4. I love this verse because it's very encouraging. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. At first glance, I think this passage could seem contradictory to Jesus, doesn't it? We think of the most famous verse to ever live, ever, to ever breathe, maybe something that you know right away, John three sixteen. what? For God so loved the world that he gave his holy begotten son, right? So God loved the world, but here James, who we think is the brother of Jesus, is saying, don't love the world. This message can seem contradictory to the one Jesus said, but I think actually uh, James is expounding on this idea of love. He's actually going after it, and he's saying, hey, let's unpack that phrase a little bit. We know Jesus loved the world. He came here. He died for us. So obviously he loved it, so what is he trying to get after? I think he's urging us to keep our priorities right. This is the most sense I can make of this passage in all my study is he's just saying, make sure you have your priorities right. And the way that he goes about this is talking to us in a way that we all understand. So the Bible does this all the time, from the front cover to the back cover. It relates, it correlates a relationship with God with marriage. Okay? What, what, it, looking at a marriage here and now, generally speaking, what correlates a healthy marriage? Faithfulness. Right? Doing the things you said you would do. Being the person you said you would be. Generally speaking, that's, that's what would signify a healthy marriage. What would signify an unhealthy marriage? The other, the other side around, right? Not doing the things you said you would do. Not being the person you promised to be. And so he's coming at us saying, hey, when you said yes to following Jesus, you said yes to the ways of Jesus. You said no to your ways of living. You said, I can't do this by myself. I'm making a mess of my life leading this thing. Jesus, I need you to lead my life. He's saying, you've walked away from the old things and you've stepped into the new things. And so that is what he's after. He's after faithfulness. And so James is saying, he wants us to see our relationship with God in that kind of context. That when you're, in a sense, married 
to God and you're being faithful to God and what he's called you to, we're actually saying no to the old thing. And for many of us, what that looks like on a day-to-day basis is blending into the world. Right? It's a Sunday faith that does whatever it wants Monday through Saturday, where we begin to look like the world. And so his words are direct, and they're stern, and they're convicting. He says, gosh, love the world, serve the world, see the beauty in the world, but don't look like it. Because Jesus looked nothing like it. Jesus flipped the world upside down, right? The world spends its time pushing people down and stepping on its shoulders while while Jesus came to serve, to throw a towel over his arm, to wash the feet of sinners. He says, love the world, but but don't don't blend into it. In other words, if we're going to follow Jesus, we're signing up for a new way of living. And I love how Paul puts it. He, He gives very direct uh, 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 handlebars of what faith looks like in Galatians 5, right? What does it look like to actually follow Jesus? How do we actually not blend into the world? He says, what's a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and the word that I think is for our culture more today than ever, self-control. Self-control. And so this is the target for us. This is the aim for a follower of Jesus is to be those things. And so, James says, to claim to be a follower of Jesus, but blend into the world, is adultery against God. So he's naming that. He's saying, I see unfaithfulness. I see people who can't endure, who are thrown back and forth by the things of this world. Don't be that person. Trust God. Follow him. So how can we love the world and not blend into it? Great question, isn't it? Very quickly, he gives us two things. Two promises for us to stand in. I hope you don't miss these, because I believe that these two promises, if, if we got this as a church, oh my gosh. Sky's the limit of what God would want to do in this community. I can promise you that. He says, the first thing is resist the devil. And guess what? The devil will flee from you. How do you not blend into the world? Resist the devil. This is interesting to me. I mean, if you know anything about the devil, you've got to know he's a coward. He has no authority over your life whatsoever. Here's the thing. The devil knows he already lost. When Jesus rose from the dead, the devil lost. He knows this. So he has no authority over your life. He can't make you do anything. All he can do is whisper lies into your ear to make you believe things. You're not loved. That, that thing you did last week, yeah, that's, it's over for you. You're a mistake. Everyone thinks you're weird. Your boss doesn't like you. Whatever it is. This is what, and, then, and then when we believe that lie, whatever one that is, if all of them, he's got you. Now he's going to be able to manipulate your life by whispering in your ear every single day, you know? And, and if, if, if in that moment, when you hear the whispers, because they'll be there, they might be there right now, that sucks. <laughs> this isn't even gospel. Maybe those are true. I don't know. But you get it. But if we hear those lies and we're like, no, that's a lie, do you know what will happen next? The devil will flee from you. He will leave you. And you know where he's going to go? He's going to find someone else's life to destroy. 
He's going to move on from you to somebody else. If we can resist him in those moments of temptation, whether it's an internet browser, whatever it is, flee. The Holy Spirit's inside of you. You have the strength to literally get up and leave a situation where the enemy is tempting you. You do? Promise here, he'll flee from you. What's the second promise? I could preach a whole message on that, Dad. Maybe I will next week. (laughs) Two, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What's the picture here? God is waiting for you. In that moment of temptation, in that moment of whispers, God is standing there with you. He's waiting for you. His arms are open. He's not far off. It's never too late to come to him, is the picture and the promise that James is leaning into for us. Too often, can I speak boldly? Do we get this backwards? Too often, everything about our lives is moving away from God. And then we get to a place where we're like, where's God? Why, isn't he, why don't I feel him? Why am I so miserable? I don't have a relationship. I just feel disconnected from community. Well, are, are you drawing near to him? Are you spending time with him? Never once have I had that conversation with somebody. Man, I'm pursuing God with everything I know. I'm drawing near to have a devotion with him. I have a prayer life. I'm in community regularly. I'm I'm serving. I've never heard someone in that place then say, I got nothing. Never. If If you've been a part, let me know. It's always been the opposite. Just ask a few questions. You see people are wandering away from God and then get to this place of wondering where is God because we've actually not been drawing near. The promise is we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. Now that, I I recognize, please don't, I recognize every single one of us are on a journey here. Some of us have known Jesus longer than others. Some of us here are questioning our faith. We have a lot of questions about stuff. We're not even sure what we believe about church or worship or, or the Bible, whatever it is. I recognize we're on a journey. That's not to discredit that. But I think we can do that with the goal to be, God, if you're real, I wanna know. I'm not going to spend my time trying to disprove you. I actually want to spend my time getting to know you. And if, in, in that place, if we do that in a real way amongst community, with humility, not pride, we will find God. That's the promise. That's not my word. James. And can, can I just say on another note, like, it, it, is pride an attractive quality in people it's the most unattractive thing at the end of the day you know someone that's extremely proud or arrogant to me it is the most unattractive quality in a follower of jesus and so playing out james is like just don't it's gross like this is yeah gross question for you how does your life look different or does it not no shame no guilt the grace of god this is what i love about he this is what james goes back to he's like this has been tough i get it this has been a lot to handle but just know the grace of god is greater because he says that in the word right there you're going to get to that place there's going to be conviction because that's what i do this holy spirit's role in your life is to convict but just know the grace is greater bigger the sin greater greater the grace so live in that grace How does your life look different? James 4, we're going to wrap up here. I could invite the band up. Everyone said. 
Does this not work? Just discrediting my voice this entire time. I'm like, it's with the Lord. Just trying to be humble. Verse 13. Let's not put this on the podcast this week. This has been a train wreck, Chris. All right. Come now. Verse 13. You who say, today or tomorrow. I love this right here. This speaks to our culture. We are a culture of dreams and aspirations and plans and like, look. This, this, this summer, I'm going to go on vacation. And this is what James has to say. Come on! Don't say that. Today or tomorrow, we'll travel to such place, such a city, and spend a year there, and do business there, and make a profit. Says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you're like a vapor, other translations say, a mist, that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live, and we will do this, or we will do that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and such boasting is evil. So it is a sin to know the good and not yet do it. I think I could make the argument that the thing, this is very, this is very stern and bold, but what I conclude from a passage like this is I think the thing that God hates the most is pride. That pride is really the root of all evil. That, that purging our souls from that and living in humility would do a lot of good in our own lives, in our relationships, in our world, in our communities. Uh, pride is actually the thing, believe it or not, that got Satan kicked out of the presence of God, was it not? Satan is a case study of what happens to somebody who's proud ultimate disconnection and separation from God. If we choose to live in that place, disconnection and separation will happen, not because God's doing that, because we're doing that to ourselves. We're saying, my way is better. My life is, I I know better than you, God. And and, and James is getting after here. There's such a better option available to you than that. Follower of Jesus. Choose humility. Choose to live in humility. And, and the good thing about James, he, he knows our stubbornness. It's in all of us, isn't it? It's all there. That's not ever going to go away. And, and, and so like we can all think we're invincible. We can think that we're all the exception to the rule, that we'll be okay. But life is really long. And life is really hard. And so he's just saying, just, you, there's a better way to live. Just live in humility. Purge your soul from pride. And then he gives us a really great picture of something. And I, I'm not a prop person, but this one time I will be. Because your life is like a mist. <laughs> you see the mist? There, there's Deggy. <laughs> there went Nathan. I don't say that in a discrediting or, or a belittle way. I'm speaking to the truth of what, what he's getting at. He's like, see your mentality. See how fragile your life is. We live this way. We live with so much arrogance and pride. We're, we bring so much dysfunction into things, and we think we're all that, but seriously, your life is like a mist. It's here one moment, and it's gone the next. There are so many people that came before me. 
There will be a lot of people that come after me. How am I going to live? People will not be remembered for pride. Pride doesn't do anything good in this world. However, if we choose to live in humility, it doesn't matter how long we're here, the seeds that we sow today will be lived out in eternity. Because guess what? When we're in the presence of God after we leave this earth, one more time, after we leave this earth and we step into the presence of God, you know the approach that we're all going to have? Humility. There will be no pride in the kingdom. It will be purged. So we are better off today learning and practicing and flexing a muscle of humility because this is how we'll live in eternity. I want to respond um, with communion, the ultimate act of humility, coming to the table, remembering who Jesus is, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's the ultimate act of humility that we can ever face. Come to the table of grace. As we come to the table, we recognize that we're sinners. We're recognizing that we're in need of Jesus, that, that I can't do this on my own. What a perfect place to go. As we wrestle, as we think, as we dissect this message this week, my hope is that as we begin with communion, that our lives will be marked with humility. So I'll pray, and then as the band leads, you can go over, and then in a couple minutes, Casey's going to come up and wrap us up. Lord, we thank you for this word, for anything that we can grab a hold on here too, Lord, anything that was said that's not from you, things that were said that were from you, I pray that we would get rid of, we would ditch the old bad, and, and we'd cling to what is true. I just pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, Lord. Would we be a community that really gets this, that Specifically, would we be a community that flees and resists the devil? Would we be a community that draw nears to you, God, with the promise that you're going to draw near back? I really believe, Lord, if we can get this, if a few of us could just do this together, man, there, this world would begin to look a lot different than it is today. And so we need your help, we need your grace, we need your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Feel free to take communion as you feel ready.